Today's episode of the Film Stage Show is brought to you by Mubi, a curated streaming service showcasing exceptional films from around the globe. For your free 30-day trial, go to mubi.com slash filmstage. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to a brand new episode of the Film Stage Show, the movie review podcast for thefilmstage.com. As always, I am your host, Brian J. Rowan. With me today, we have Michael Snydell. I'm here to talk about the magic hour. Let's do this. <laughs> <laughs> we also have Bill Graham. Hell yeah, motherfuckers. That is the perfect <laughs> thing to say at the beginning of a t- podcast about the Terrence Malick classic Days of Heaven. I can't think of anything that fits the tone of this movie more <laughs> oh boy um and we also have a special guest with us today to talk about days of heaven scout tafoya i didn't know there'd be this much adult language so i don't know that i can join you guys on this journey anymore there's already been a lot of swearing and this just started so i don't see it getting any better so i'll just cut my losses now and wish you guys a good podcast <laughs> Every once in a while, I think like, oh man, my daughter's going to have like so many hours of just like recordings of me so she can really get to know me as a person. Then I just pause and I'm like, maybe that's a terrible idea. (laughs) This is this is like when my mom recently took an interest in the podcast or no, no. it was actually my sister. And and she's like, oh, me me and mom are together. And, you know, we we thought, what if we listen to your podcast together? (laughs) Which one? Yeah, yeah, Pixar one. <laughs> yeah, definitely do the most vulgar episode ever, Toy Story Four, for some goddamn reason. <laughs> no, you guys talk. You guys talk a lot about like penetration and stuff. You know, I want to say no, but I cannot say for sure because we really, for whatever reason, just like went off the goddamn handle on that one. I gotta re-listen. I mean, to that. I, I get it. I get it. It's a it's a pretty adult movie, you know, like. The third one, because it ends with the, all those allusions to the Holocaust, they were they were literally like, well, we've got nowhere else to go, so we might as well go all in on hardcore fucking. Pretty much Caligula the, was actually the main influence of that fourth one. It's basically <laughs> closer, but with toys, you know? There's just a lot of sexual <laughs> jealousy and uncertainty. <laughs> closer know. with toys. I, I want to fuck you like an animal is... Uh... <laughs> Yeah, well, that, wow. Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, they scored that one. I believe it was shot by uh, uh, that guy who shoots all of Gaspar Noe's movies, whose name now escapes me, ruining this joke. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> anyway, good times. We're, we're, we're here to talk about Days of Heaven. Um, Terrence Arnelix. <laughs> you are, I'm ost- not. Ostensibly. <laughs> We were here the other day to talk about Tesla and barely really talked about that movie. <laughs> it was a fun episode, though. Y- episode. You and Clint are not allowed to ever be on the same podcast. When we, again. when we, when me and Clint get in the same room, sparks fly. It's electric. You know, it's just. Oh boy, <laughs> anyway. it's radioactive. Yes, it's radioactive. <laughs> It's hard to separate the wheat from the chaff. Uh, it's a new week. It's a new movie. It's a whole new set of puns. We will be talking about the 1978 film by director Terrence Malick, Days of Heaven, starring Richard Gere, Brooke Adams, Sam Shepard, 
and Linda Mance. Um, before we do that, the usual stuff, you can find us on Twitter at Film Stage Show, Facebook, The Film Stage Show, email us podcast at filmstage.com. And of course, give us a comment or rating whenever you have the opportunity. It helps people to find us and lets us know that we're doing a good job. There's a bunch of other stuff that I need to talk about. For instance, you can give to our Patreon by going to patreon.com slash the film stage show. For as little as $1 an episode, you get access to our Slack channel and first crack at all of our raffles and a bunch of other cool stuff like that. So again, if you have, if brother, can you spare a dime? You can go to patreon.com slash the film stage show. We are also brought to you by Mubi. The online streaming service that brings you the best of independent world cinema. Every day, movie premieres a brand new film. Whether it's a timeless classic, a cult favorite, or an acclaimed masterpiece, it's guaranteed to either be a movie that you've been dying to see or one you've never heard of and you will love. There is some great stuff on there right now. For instance, Joint Security Area from Park chan This... Is after a shooting in the DMZ leaves two North Korean military officers dead. A South Korean sergeant stands accused. Both sides offering radically different accounts. It's up to a Swiss Korean envoy to unravel the twisted truth. So that's awesome. Can't wait to see that from the director of The Handmaiden and Old Boy. Uh, there's a bunch of other great stuff on there. And if you would like a free 30 day trial, all you gotta do is go to mubi.com slash filmstage. Again, mubi.com slash filmstage. I still have to watch Mountains Made Apart. I really got to try to make some time for that. Because after our Ashes Purest White episode, I just, I need, I need more context. I need to see more work by that director. I think you might like A Touch of Sin better, but Mountains Made Apart I was going to say, Mountains... Mountains and uh, and Ashes Purest White are him at his sort of most uh, uh, abstruse. They're not really the ones that sort of iron out what he does and what he does well. He's yeah. uh, sort of gotten more and more abstract as he's aged. Interesting. Yeah, I think a touch of sin you would you would be into though, Brian. Yeah, and and it would touch- like push you right into that world. I'm I'm touch- glad. I think that I probably would because as a Catholic, you know, I I like sin, but only a touch. <laughs> <laughs> a, I don't want too much sin. I want just a touch of sin. Uh, I have some bad news about that title. <laughs> <laughs> Is it ironic? Oh no! It's a little more than touch. I, <laughs> like you know, I I heard about the movie Seven, and I was like, all seven? Ugh! If you could give me like two or three, I think I could handle this. But anyway, it's a terrible joke, and I'm exactly. sorry I made it. The devil's advocate. No, sir, I will not. Anyway, uh, so that's mubi.com slash film stage for a free 30-day trial of Mubi. Um, before we get into our feature review, um, anyone have any updates on the COVID side of things? Any new news? Painting my house. You're painting your house? Yeah. Well, okay. I mean, more Erica is, but yeah. <laughs> You're watching well, I mean, as helping. your fiance paints your house. Well, I mean, I, I can't help her when she does it. So, Bill, I heard you paint houses. You heard wrong, apparently. Yeah, Mr. and Mrs. Smith going on over here. I do my own carpentry, too. There was a great uh, moment where uh, I like got to the distillery and Arthur was like, hey, man, like you're a little like you were late. Like, what's up? And I said, um, Cora. 
like scribbled all over the walls. So I had to clean that up. And she she walks into the room and Arthur looks at her and said, hey, I heard you paint houses. <laughs> and what's funny is that he had no idea what he just said to her. And I just broke into laughter. And he was like, what is it? I'm like, uh, it's that she murders people. He's like, oh, well, yeah, that too. <laughs> That was just assumed. Yes. So anyway, uh, yeah, Cora paints houses. Uh, is snack how you dispose of bodies? Is, is that what's really <laughs> happening? Yes, the Brad? barely a foot long <laughs> corn snake is how I get rid of bodies. It takes a long time. Well, that that means it's an even better alibi. Michael, you accuse me of bringing up the snake a lot, but every time that we talk about Snack the Snake, it's you. I like the snake. It's fun. No, it's fun. I'm having a good time. (laughs) Meanwhile, poor Cassandra, the blue-tongued skink, is just hanging out in her tank. No one's talking about her. Did you say a blue-tongued skink? Skink with an I. (laughs) Jesus. What is a skink? Somebody... Didn't used to flip through the uh, illustrated guide to reptiles as a child. A skink yeah, is a small lizard, not unlike a Gila monster. Oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah. All right. She's about the size of a small house cat. She's adorable. she got a look on her face like she's constantly upset about something but won't tell you what it is. She's, she's fantastic. <laughs> she's the perfect pet for me. Anyway, we're here to talk about Days of Heaven. I once again assert fruitlessly. Uh, second feature film from director Terrence Malick. This movie stars uh, Linda Mance, who sadly passed recently, as well as Sam Shepard, who also has sadly passed, uh, as well as Brooke Adams and Richard Gere. They're they're all dead. No, the, the, I no. I said the ones no. who passed. The other ones are all alive. Jesus. Though I did have to click on Brooke Adams because I wasn't sure. Anyway, uh, so still, I, still with us. Yeah. I, I, She's had an odd career. We'll have to talk. I think she just looks so much like the woman who played Marion Ravenwood that I... Karen Allen. Well, no, Brooke Adams became Karen Allen. Um, and Brooke Adams, of course, before being Brooke Adams was Jessica Harper. Of course, yes. She is ageless and she goes on through different bodies and souls. She is the... Uh, what- she's like Cloud Atlas. Yeah, she's like Cloud Atlas. <laughs> so kind of racist, but well-intentioned. <laughs> In that way, aren't most of us like Cloud Atlas? Speak for yourself. <laughs> anyway. Oh, boy. Um, really excited to talk about this movie. Uh, when we started doing classic episodes, I immediately was like, well, we got to talk about all of Terrence Malick's films. And somehow... This is the first time we've ever actually really done it. Um, I look forward to later on in time making you all watch Badlands, The Thin Red Line, and uh, The New World. But until then, I'm just going to have to be sated. We did talk about The New World. It was just you and me. (laughs) When was that? Like 17 years ago? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that sounds right. I actually... (laughs) that's right it was one of those weird episodes where somehow it was just you and me i don't know what happened to bill in that case yeah i don't know that was allowed (laughs) did you say bill wasn't allowed no i don't know how we were allowed oh yeah no there was a string of those there was anyara there was the new world we for some reason talked about the new colossus the wolfenstein two dudes talking about lady bird and we didn't get the least problematic (laughs) episode ever 
Um, and I said, I'm sorry, I didn't hear that one. It sounds fucking uh, revelatory. Look, no one's ever done it before. No one has ever had two white men just talk about a movie that was not pitched at their demographic and not made by people who looked like them before. Uh-huh. <laughs> anyway, Days of Heaven, the second theatrical release by Terrence Malick from 1978. Here is the trailer. In 1916, America was changing. Expanding. Holding a promise of new prosperity. People heard the call, and it made them restless. Empires were being built in the wide open spaces. Uh, Old school movie trailers. Yeah, that's terrible. I wouldn't have seen that fucking movie. <laughs> it's like a full no, minute in, and, and it still hasn't introduced like the main characters. <laughs> they literally, the fucking distributor got to look at that movie, and they were like, what the hell is this even about? We can't sell this. You better sell everybody on the Depression. Right, it's quick. the beginning of a Ken Burns documentary on like the Dust Bowl. Um, no, actually, that's Interstellar by... Uh, it already exists. <laughs> Um, so did that documentary. <laughs> I know he did. Okay. Ken Burns has done a documentary about everything. I look forward to his documentary about my distillery. <laughs> Just a lot of photographs getting panned over, over across. Um, anyway, what are we talking about? Days of Heaven, uh, second theatrical release by director Terrence Malick, who, of course, as we all know, is perhaps my favorite director. And this movie... It's about Richard Gere and Brooke Adams, who play a pair of lovers named Billy and Abby. Uh, After Billy kills a foreman at his job at a steel mill, he, Abby, and uh, his sister Linda, who's played by Linda Mance, go on the run, end up on a wheat farm, and uh, complications ensue when they hatch a plot to attempt to defraud the farmer out of his money. So let's uh, talk about this movie. First of all, I'm interested to know... Uh, when you all saw this movie and was it your first Malik or was it like a different, cause we're going to have to put this in the context of this very singular director's very singular career. So I want to know, Scouts Foya, uh, when did you see Days of Heaven? Uh, was it your first Malik and what were your thoughts on it? So, uh, my dad was a huge fan of Thin Red Line. He had the soundtrack that he listened to all the time. So I kind of grew up hearing Thin Red Line even before I had seen it, and certainly before I understood what it was doing. I, I knew the Thin Red Line is the movie that wasn't Saving Private Ryan, essentially, that those are the two World right. War II films that came out at the exact same time, and there was this debate about which one sort of had the, the better approach. For my money now, certainly, it's uh, Thin Red Line. It's There's just no, there's just no question. Um, I saw The New World because uh, I remember the trailers for that. And again, you know, speaking of bad trailers, that sold it as a very conventional movie. And The New World is is nothing, nothing like what the trailer <laughs> tries to sell it as. It looked like Gladiator. Basically, that's what they were trying to sell it as. They're just like, hey, it's a big sweeping epic with violence and romance. And <laughs> it's it's just not that at all. Um, and so I, I had a little bit of context for Terrence Malick by the time I saw Days of Heaven, which was um, right after its Criterion release. I want to say... Like uh, 2011, 2010. Um, no, I'm sorry. Uh, way, way earlier than that. Like 2007, 2008. Um, I I rented it from the Temple University Film Library back when I uh, was still at Temple University for the semester that I was there, and I just loved everything about it. I was completely entranced. Then I remember 
watching it, it was over a Christmas holiday and my uncle walked into the room at the exact moment that um, Richard Gere and Brooke Adams drop their goblet into the stream and a fish goes past it. And my uncle says, only Terrence Malick would show you the fish going through a goblet. <laughs> and that was sort of like my my first entree into the understanding of him as a popular figure in the cinema. And later, of course, um, reading about Nestor Almendros, um, the great cinematographer who uh, who filmed this and kind of learning more about his approach and, and, and later learning just how much of it relied on sort of intuition and improvisation and the way that he slowly had to build himself a kind of army of simpatico collaborators. Um, there's a lot of really interesting insight into Terrence Malick's uh, process vis-a-vis -vis the stuff that um, the photographer who filled in for Nestor Almendros halfway through the shoot, Haskell Wexler, um, had to go through in making this because he was used to making, you know, normal movies in America <laughs> and not just poems written on the fly by a Texan in a huge hat. Um, so they, you know, they're, they're doing these things. And this also feels, Scout, I want to pause you because this feels very rude to Haskell Wexler, also one of the best cinematographers <laughs> in history. Listen, you, you listen. know that guy. <laughs> no, I'm saying I'm saying he should have been a little more open to you know poetic experimentation. Is all I'm saying. Sure. You know, he's used to you know we're going to do the setup here, we're going to do the shot, reverse shot, blah blah blah. You can take two, you know five or what you know whatever, just normal shit. And then Terrence Malick at one point says, "Hey, there's a there's a coyote going over that hill there. Can you go film that for me?" And Haskell Wexler said, "No fucking way. What are you talking about?" <laughs> I'm not chasing a coyote up a hill. That's not how we make movies. So that kind of... Uh, it sounds uh, like he said that while, like, chomping a cigar. Cigar, yeah, he did. He very much did. He was wearing a, a tuxedo, <laughs> and he had a He's monocle. big old suspenders. <laughs> suspenders, exactly. There was a kid covered in coal ash next to him coughing. That's right. That's right. He's he's actually he plays the the mill foreman that Stuart Margolin plays. That's him. That's, how, that's what, who that character is based on. Um, so he he just hated working for Terrence Malick. He did not understand the point of like going to film nonsense that had nothing to do with the movie itself. Not realizing that that is indeed how Terrence Malick makes movies. And you know now with the benefit of hindsight, we can say that uh, Haskell Wexler was indeed wrong, <laughs> and Terrence Malick was right because look at the results. I know that not many people will join me on this one, but I, for instance, I think that Knight of Cups is one of the best films ever made. I think that's just one of the finest bits of mythic storytelling um, as Woo. applied to the modern world. I think that that film is absolutely majestic. I am with um, you. I, I Yeah, I just think he, Terrence Malick can do no wrong as far as I'm concerned. Like there, I, there are a lot of beautiful things that Keith Ulick on um, – uh, song to song, find him and read him on that. That'll really turn you around on that movie if you're sort of on the fence. But uh, for me, Night of Cups is is the film to beat. And uh, as much as I enjoy Days of Heaven, um, you know, it, it definitely seems like he's sort of pushing towards the grammar that he would later sort of like firm up a little bit in being totally open to the whims of nature and the sort of poetic beauty of his surroundings and the places that he goes to film and the uh, the kind of whims of his uh, actors as well this feels this feels like pretty straightforward for him you know with the sort of on the run plot and everything so anyway that was days of heaven i think it's a great introduction to terrence malick but i think that he gets better as he goes yeah the fact that you know exactly what's going on in this movie at any given time is definitely not latter day terrence malick uh, uncharacteristic <laughs> uncharacteristic uncharacteristic <laughs> narrative clarity <laughs>
<laughs> All right, Bill Graham. Uh, when did you see this? What? Which Malik was it for you? And uh, what are your thoughts? I mean, holy shit! How do I follow up on that? You um, can't. That's why I'm making you do it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is my first. No, not my first Malik. Uh, this is definitely my first time seeing this movie. Oh. Um, I. I don't know. Uh, I wasn't. I was expecting a three-hour film, so I was pleasantly surprised <laughs> by the fact that it was uh, an hour and a half. And I was like, "Oh, this is going to be delightful." <laughs> um, I uh, I really enjoyed it, but yeah, I wasn't quite sure what to expect from this. Um, and like I was saying, like Sam Shepard was a very young man, and I was very surprised by that. Um, Overall, I I was actually struck by how much uh, voiceover Malik uses in this film. I think it almost feels like a crutch in a way. Um, it feels so overburdened by by the use of it. Um, and you know, obviously, we're we're getting it from the I guess the daughter's perspective, right? Um, Linda Mance. Yes, she's she's uh, Richard Gere's sister. Is she though? Yeah. Okay. We we can talk about that. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I was really struck by this film, but uh, I wasn't expecting how much voiceover was in it and uh, how much of a key part that kind of ends up playing. So yeah, I, I'm I'm curious to talk about this. I mean, obviously this film has a long, long history. Uh, I, I couldn't help but notice that Amazon called it one of the most critically acclaimed films of all time. And I was just like, oh, Jesus, that's a lot to live up to. But yeah. So I'm curious. You, I mean, you've, you've seen other Terrence Malick films. Like, was there a reason that this this level of uh, voiceover like shocked you given that his other films are equally heavy in voiceover or does it just feel like this one has even more to you? I guess it feels like it had more to me or uh, more than this, but I guess it's also my lack of experience with Malik. Um, Like looking over this, I think I've seen to the wonder the tree of life and um. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> God, how are you allowed to be on this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what I've gotten into. Well, I mean, look, you you haven't given me a lot of time to uh, watch these movies, so we got to do been more. Alive of this, for obviously. like thirty years. <laughs> no, 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 no. no. I, I mean, on the, the hell you've been doing with yourself? Because <laughs> we did the we did Tree of Life, I think, on this podcast. I'm um, I. You know, that's a great question. I think we were around when Tree of Life came out. Twenty eleven. Maybe uh, no, I was dead. I wasn't born yet. <laughs> <laughs> I um <clears throat> and and oh, I like how and, your and, your definition of not like I wasn't born yet means that you were dead. <laughs> you know, different strokes, different folks. That's not an answer. Anyway, I will say the tree of life we did not cover because <laughs> this podcast I don't believe existed then. Um, but we have covered everything since then. So well, I guess Tree of Life, Tree of yeah. Life is kind of a fascinating Malick thing because it was the first of his movies that that like, uh, like there there it's it's very rarely I think that he immediately gains a foothold in culture like Badlands was thought of as like a very good movie enough so that it got him Days of Heaven which was also seen as an incredibly good movie then Red Line I think was really well liked at the time but it didn't become like a classic for a number of years 
New World, same thing, had a lot of fans, but it also had detractors, and it didn't make a splash of the box office, so people didn't really talk about it. Right. My, Tree of my, Life was the... F- my memory of the New World, I mean, like, I saw it and loved it, obviously, because I'm, I am, uh, what do you call it when you're someone who just, like, a simp? I'm a simp for Terrence Malick. <laughs> big, big loser. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway. Big time virgin, is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's um, 100%. I don't know where my daughter came from. Um, so... <laughs> So I remember seeing it, loving it, and then I just remember all these reviews that were like, oh, I mean, like, it's pretty sure, but like, uh, Terrence Malick, what the fuck? And then around like 2009, when all the end of the year or end of the decade lists were coming, everyone was like, here's a movie that everyone slept on. The New World, yeah. perhaps the greatest movie of the decade. And I was like, you sons <laughs> of bitches. <laughs> I've been screaming my head off for five years about this. And the same thing happened with To the Wonder. In fact, if you go and listen to the year-end episode for this podcast, the year that To the Wonder came out, Danny and Nick, who were on the show then, I had like a two-hour-long fist fight with them on our To the Wonder episode, saying it was great. And they said it was terrible. And they said, like, Malik has really fallen. Terrible. And, and then, and then the, the year end list comes around. I put it at like number seven, and they each put it at like number two. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I feel like I had a small meltdown. Uh, so, yeah, this uh, Terrence Malik, he, he grows on you, I guess is the way to put it. Um, yeah, well that, but that's the only time that a movie of his didn't have to grow was Tree of Life because it won the Palm Door that year. Mm-hmm. One of the few times that, you know, the most interesting film won the Palm Door. And it was like a hard, it was, it was, that year was stiff competition too. There were some crazy good movies that year. Um, that was the year of Melancholia and, mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, Footnote. There was just a zillion really interesting films. Everybody really like firing on all cylinders that year. Uh, Drive premiered. It got best director. Um, but Tree of Life was very obviously the, the film that took the, 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 the strongest and mightiest risks. And, uh, I think they all paid off really handsomely. So that was the first film of his where it was like clear right away. Like, oh, this is a modern classic that we were all talking about. It even got um, nominated that, for the Academy Award, which is, you know, not, it, it's a kind of meaningless award, you know, but like, yeah, the P. fact that it got even nominated. Yeah. It's, it's the it's, BP nominee, right? Uh, yeah, it was because that was that was they were still doing Why? ten nominees at that point. <laughs> yes, and it yes, lost to the artist. <laughs> yeah, well, it shouldn't have. That's a great movie about um, I don't know, that song from Vertigo, and if there's a better movie with the song from Vertigo in it, I haven't seen it, and I don't want to. <laughs> I just I, I I have many beefs with artist the artist, and uh, one is that it beat Tree of Life, and the other is that that stupid dog outshone for whatever reason the dog from beginners which is clearly a better canine performance i mean it is a better dog but they really do all follow in the footsteps of the dog from fraser if you're oh, just yeah, joining I mean, us we're talking about terrence malick <laughs> jesus okay well i i have a quick context question for uh for uh, brian you and you and scout I, i'm curious so as i understand it Days of Heaven is also to kind of uh, coincide with our conversation right now. It's kind of the first time that he really started to get this difficult reputation. Like this was the first film where there was, you know, like, isn't there supposed to be 50 hours of Mance that wasn't used, for instance, for this film? I, I might be wrong about the exact number, but is this the first time that his reputation really started to 
in, in some way bring in his difficulty as an actual uh, creative. Well, it took him yes. two years to edit it, so it was yeah was, there was a lot there was a lot of stuff that that came with this movie because before that he was a guy i think he was like on his way up he helped jack nicholson uh rewrite drive he said he did a pass like everybody else in hollywood at dirty harry he wrote the great script for pocket money um and then badlands so like he was on the ascendance and everybody wanted to like him because his movies were really really interesting and his work was really good but this was the time that sure. he sort of starts to announce himself as a very temperamental guy who really likes things done a certain way the haskell wexler story is not the only story from that set about how strange and difficult the conditions were i remember a friend of mine worked for brooke adams sister at a startup in boston for a number of years and they used to tell stories about how difficult terrence Malick was to work with that at one point he apparently said to sam shepherd <laughs> he didn't like his performance in one scene and he said i thought you were supposed to be good at this <laughs> and seb shepherd at this point was a playwright um yeah he <laughs> and he's really good in the movie too like yeah he's fantastic in this movie. it's crazy well that's like um, i feel like every once in a while a director just has to like just hurt the pride of whoever they're working with like <laughs> Didn't didn't Michael Mann like just straight up look Johnny Depp dead in the eyes and said, "Oh, I get it. You can't act." <laughs> I mean, that's public funny enemies. and kind yeah. of true. <laughs> I mean, at that point, absolutely. Um, but yeah, like, no. This was this was this was the start of it. But then it wasn't helped at all by the fact that he then didn't work for twenty years. Everybody assumed it was because he was this reclusive maniac instead of somebody who like moved to Paris like had a normal life, did some theater. Like he was, it wasn't like a mystery. You know what I mean? If anybody had asked him, he would have told you. I was like, oh yeah, I was, he staged a, a theatrical production of um, uh, Mizuguchi Zugetsu, I think oh, wow. in in Paris, I want to say, or maybe I'm wrong about that. But that was the thing that he did during the time. It was like, he was, he was still doing stuff. He just wasn't making movies. <laughs> but that's, that's what happens with this industry is they assume that if you're not doing movies, it's because you're like a fucking right. He's not, he's guy. not Richard Stanley who like went to a hermitage <laughs> in the mountains I, and yeah. yeah. No. And I think also that like, the, the, there's just like so many things about Malik that make him an easy target for this stuff because he's got a very earnest spiritual life and everything that I think it's, it's very, it's very easy to paint him as a temperamental weirdo. Um, you know, he doesn't do interviews. He's, you know, he's very rarely seen in public. And then all of his movies have this kind of uh, diffuse quality to them. But, you know, I just, I think he's just like a normal dude. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, he, he doesn't strike me as, you know, like a, a, a Nolan or a Kubrick or someone who it's like, you know, it's just a yeah. tour. Yeah. 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 Like, I really feel like it's probably frustrating to be around him because he's not like those guys. Like if you'd asked Kubrick <laughs> what he wants, he would like scream at you and tell yeah. you like the, the microns that your feet weren't hitting and how you were ruining his vision. And Malik is just like, I don't know. I just like the clouds. Yeah. Just go <laughs> just walk away from me and we'll film you at some point. Like he, and the thing is, too, like just to further dispel the kind of like, you know, reclusive weirdo rumors, he shot a fucking Mon Guerlain ad with Angelina Jolie in 2017. And he did like a like a very, very normy um, like VR experience in 2018. He's just like he'll just like do wow. stuff, you know? Yeah, but yes. he's just got like his whole like How do I do that. It's it, like that's one of the reasons I love Knight of Cups is that like he's he's got so like you you look at the margins of that movie 
And there's just like there's Dan Harmon's in there. You've got uh, Ron Swanson. Joe Latrulio. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tom Lennon. Yeah. Tom Lennon has my favorite uh, line in that whole movie where he says, it's cold and it's full of sharks. I hate the ocean. <laughs> and there's a great piece where Tom Lennon explains what it's like to be on a Terrence Malick set. And yes, he's like, I was given a right, card that right. said something weird on yes. it. And I said, what is it? And they just shrugged. <laughs> it's a uh, it's beautiful i love it um but yes to what is nick offerman's oh god nick offerman says no, i, I like go through life like i'm playing call what of duty on duty? easy mode yeah. just straight mowing down motherfuckers or something like that <laughs> so in hindsight bill's uh sign-on wasn't appropriate uh yeah uh, motherfuckers it, yeah there you see there you go um but yes, yeah, so in answer to your question specifically, yes, uh, uh, Days of Heaven was the first movie where everybody sort of got their first dose of the Terrence Malick mythos, and it just stuck, and it's still true today, which is fucking crazy. Yeah. And that movie is over 40 years old. <laughs> I will say, now that we're talking about it, for, I don't, I've never had this thought before, and I just need to put it out there. After having seen Knight of Cups, it should have become immediately apparent to me that like Terrence Malick needs to do an adaptation of a Brett Easton, a Brett Easton Ellis novel, like less than zero. Oh God. Can I, can I blow your mind a little bit that Please I think do. That the best, the best possible use of Terrence Malick in a conventional setting and nobody fucking steal this because this is my idea is an adaptation <laughs> of what? Oh no. You're on a podcast. This is when we Wait can do minute. that obnoxious podcast thing where it's like, okay, just tell us off mic and then we'll never tell anyone this thing that we left in the episode. I was told this was a deposition for my upcoming hearing. I was not told this was a podcast. I did wonder at the number of times we played the score from Days of Heaven, but <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm I'm kidding. So anyway, no, the best the best possible uh, project that Terrence Malick could do that's like like semi traditional is an adaptation of I Am Legend. Okay, yeah, I can see that. He would be. He would be perfect for that like that is absolutely the yeah, best it, approach like the original richard agree, matheson yeah yeah, yeah yeah the richard matheson book very not, contemplative you know, not, yes yes yeah with the, very, the, the editing and the ashes and the piles of bodies and everything like mm -hmm. and the empty cities like that is crying out for the terrence malick approach that book. and because he's mm -hmm. alone you gotta have voiceover right <laughs> exactly yeah, i would say exactly that or if they could remake the the road based on the Cor McCarthy, oh, I feel Jesus. like you've you've definitely tapped into something with the post apocalypse. Well, the thing is, you don't even you, you don't need to do the road again because you know they, they may have not gotten that perfectly, but it would be redundant at this point. Because what are you going to do? You're going to film people walking on the fucking road. Like <laughs> there's only there's only so much that that book supports visually. <laughs> very true very true i i that that was a nightmare to to watch i do <laughs> like that movie but it is true i like i i remember being so amped for that and then i watched it and i was like oh right like what else was i expecting i'm amped for this movie i loved the book i loved john hillcoat i was like oh this is the perfect marriage of of a uh, director and source material and then i was like oh right but it's a it's a fucking horror show yeah, and it's no, not really made to be a movie. 
I, I, remember, I remember that movie watching it and thinking that this is why this needs to be only a book because a book you can open it and then close that motherfucker five minutes later and like, go look outside and be like, it, the world is beautiful. And a, a movie, you cannot do that. I think that movie's uh, just a little over two hours. And, you know, you get out of the theater and you're just like, holy fuck. I need some ice cream and someone to hug me right now. I need to go it's pet a dog. True. Well, that's, I think, remember to like, the, the, the pitfalls of, of making a movie in the style of Terrence Malick when you're not Terrence Malick is not really understanding the balance of the sort of like hangover that the cosmos gives you and also how beautiful it can be. You don't leave a Terrence Malick film feeling like the weight of everything you just saw. You feel like energized and like you've just seen life in a way that you wouldn't have otherwise, you know, and that can Absolutely. be you know kind of that can you know that that can take many forms but i really don't think that people leave those movies like depressed you Terrence know Malick in a way that- fundamentally alters the way that i see the world after i have seen one of his movies like i mean, i, I step out kind of. yeah i step out of the movie theater and it's like the sound mix and just the way that my head moves and the way that i process the visual information around me suddenly becomes like the gliding camera of a Terrence Malick film. And I'm just like, it's true. There's so much beauty in this urban hellscape that I've stepped into. I completely agree. And furthermore, he and Ken Russell are basically the guys who revolutionize what soundtracks are, 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 can be, you know, like Ken Russell um, very much taking after Walt Disney's Fantasia in, in sort of repurposing classical music. And Terrence Malick does exactly the same thing, but to slightly different ends, where Ken Russell was very taken with the momentum of classical music and what that sort of could be literalized as. Whereas Terrence Malick, and James Horner yelled at him for this, by the way. James Horner hated Terrence Malick because James Horner wrote a score for The New World, yeah. and Terrence Malick replaced it with, with Wagner. And he was like, I watched that fucking shit. It's yeah, that, we, that stupid fucking Wagner <laughs> telling you what to think every second. Now I'm that like, yeah, we, now that Michael has re-remembered to me that we did that, I recall having like a whole conversation about that on that podcast. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, it's you know, and that's and he was one of the first guys to do. It. I mean, the Sansen music in this, you know, the aquarium is very, very famously. I think basically it's this and like the ads for Walt Disney's Beauty and the Beast are what you think of when you think of that really? Sansen piece. Yeah, and. It's, you know, it really does speak to his, the, the immediacy of the images and how like, like sort of, I don't even know how to describe, like how primal and kind of like pre-conscious they are that you like, you, you, you kind of feel like you're seeing the world for the first time when you're watching some of his movies. If you're in the right headspace, obviously, I don't mean to speak for literally every viewer, but it does feel only the right that you're sort of, yeah. the thought right. the thought i had on this rewatch and I, and i was thinking about this a lot in relation to i mean it was weird having watched a, a hidden life a, a, you know very recently at the end of you know last year obviously and and going to this and having you know I, the the among the many dumb things that people put on a hidden life is the obsession with the voiceover with the motorcycle but uh, nonetheless right. I, I i think that seeing that and talking about that also clarified for me this time that you are, I, I, I totally agree with you and the Brian, you and Brian in the sense that it is something so overwhelming, but I, I like it. If I was going to try to put that more articulate that more specifically, I think it's this idea that like 
everything that is at the first sight of everything is the totality of it. Yeah. Like it, yeah. it's, it's almost like every shot that he has here, you know, whether it's, it's an errant locust or a, um, yeah, you know, sorry, I'm just trying to think of things that are kind of fleeting, uh, yeah, fleeting shots no, that he sure. focuses on here. And, and it's almost like, it's interesting. You guys are talking about uh, this, like, uh, you know, joy de vivre and in the sense of life you're feeling, because I think there's just such an urgency to every time that he he brings something, which, you know, obviously is paradoxically uh, in contrast to all these great stories about, you know, him telling crew members to be like, go follow that coyote. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, there's something that, that I think is what especially struck me on this time in, in the sense that, you know, it's not only the narrative clarity that, that Brian mentioned, but it's the sense that these themes are are so self-evident to the point that everything around it can just kind of percolate and just reveal its textures slowly without muddying anything in the film. Mm-hmm. And to make that even more complex, I don't think I'd realized until this, this is my third rewatch. It's probably been at least 10 years since my last one. Um, and I had totally forgotten how dramatically the pacing changes in the last 15 minutes of this. Uh, oh yeah. Yep. Like it's uh I oh we're in we're in spoilers whatever. Uh, Everything's so, a spoiler. Yeah, after, it's a classic episode. No, no, I know, I know. So after they after they leave and they're on the run after uh he kills uh, after uh Deer kills Sam Shepard. I'm sorry, I don't have character names in front of me, guys. Bill uh, and the farmer. I really have after bill kills the farmer and they're on the run you know it's i mean it's it's linda mance who i want to talk about in a bit but i'll just uh what i will say though is that just like the way that it brings a close to that part of the story and really is like we can never go back like i i I mean obviously it, it works in the a uh, metaphorical Eden sense, but also I think it's it's such a it's at once so graceful and also like emotionally brutal, despite there being you know just this really nice like uh, you know pastoral acoustic <laughs> guitar that's like <laughs> well that's oh, yeah the Leo Kotke music <laughs> yeah Leo Kotke on the twelve string absolutely underselling. That's Leo oh, Kaki, yeah. God. Okay, well, that <laughs> makes so much sense. But yeah, yeah it's, it's sorry. What I was just my my point about that though, again, is that like I think I, every time I see a Malik film, it it's just a reminder that these easy signifiers and these easy things that we try to make pat for him, it, it's exactly what uh what separates and complicates him like yeah. I, I i think you're absolutely right about how emphatic uh, emphatic the narrative is here and yet i'd have a hard time i i mean i don't think it's accidental that bill was like i i didn't know whether she was the sister or the daughter because that wasn't that wasn't immediately clear to me uh, on this rewatch as well honestly I, especially yeah. combined with their own 
you know, uh, willful deceit. Right, with their lies. Yeah, they're, they're grifters. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they're grifters, no, but they're not I, good I, at it. No. They're if, we, if we ever find the time to talk about the actual <laughs> plot of this film. No, sure, sure. It strikes me how terrible bill is at the grift not not bill graham our illustrious grifting bill graham but bill played by richard Gere. yeah motherfuckers he's yeah how's your grifting business going bill are you still in jail <laughs> he yeah, that's, why I was out, cutting out. that's why i was cu- i was cutting in and out because you're in the yard <laughs> got shitty shitty internet over the here, white man. supremacists uh, are in the corner with the good wi-fi so he's gonna be across God. the hall <laughs> More like uh, white fi. Hello. Um, <laughs> That's a terrible joke. No, and I loved it. But I, I, sorry. Yeah. But no, I completely agree with you, uh, Snydell. That like, it, it, there's so much of this, it, like, for how clear the narrative beats are, at least as demarcated by events and incidents, it is still an extremely diffuse story with m- mostly unimportant things. I mean, the broad strokes are two people on the run because Richard Gere killed somebody. They get the idea to, gr- you know, grift the farmer by having her fall in love with him so they can all get the comfort of his money. Uh, Richard Gere comes back. He's like bad at hiding his jealousy. Uh, then he and uh, Brooke Adams and, and Sam Shepard all quarrel. Sam Shepard is dead, then the police kill Richard Gere, and then that's the end of it. Like, that's, you know, that's that's the plot in a nutshell, which is, you know, whatever, a very tortured run-on sentence, but still, there's not much there, and the rest of it is just life. It's just the beautiful and bizarre that befalls them while they're staying at the farm for this whole time. I mean, there's that beautiful and very, you know, like, strange and eerie, but very funny sequence where the, the acrobats land their planes out of <laughs> yeah, nowhere. The flying Rich, circus. Like a Fellini movie that invades yeah, exactly. for 20 minutes. <laughs> well, that's, like, and that's very 70s, too, that whole thing of, like, the, the suddenly we're at a carnival. Like, that's, you know, that, like, very, like, kind of uh, rewritten Preston Sturge's energy, which was, like, mm-hmm. so much a part of 70s cinema. Um, and... And again, like, you know, even even Terrence Malick being, you know, and I, I, I have to think that part of that is him being inspired by Stanley Kubrick, where he just lets Linda Mance talk for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and then just puts together things that kind of sort of complement the images. Like, you know, it's this very kind of happy go lucky new Hollywood thing where everybody's drunk on possibility, um, you know, which which works for Malick in the long run, because but when he you know reemerges, he's got a much better sense of what he wants movies to be. Um, and frequently what he wants them to be is, is things where important people get cut out of them and get very mad. You see this as not fully formed. I, I know you already said that you you think he just gets better. But I, I'm just you find, for instance, the way that he pairs together Linda Mance's voiceover and, and the film. I, I mean, not amateurish, but you find something. Oh no! I uh, sorry. I yeah, think it's embryonic I think it's about it. I think it's embryonic in the sense that um, he doesn't control it. Um, I think Linda Mance just makes most of her voiceover up, and I think that that gives the film an element of randomness that I think is missing from a lot of the later stuff, where the images can become random because he's sending Emmanuel Lubetsky and his camera crew out into the field um, just to like film whatever and come back with it and have that sort of you know make the, uh, the the firmest thread of the movie. But this feels a little more open to possibility in that regard because he's telling a very 70s story, which he was famous for at this point, you know, the kind of like, you know, lovers on the run thing. He was he was big into buddy movies. That was like mm-hmm. what he sure. did. 
Um, he wrote a great Jack Start movie called the the Dion Brothers, and Pocket Money is Paul Newman and Lee Marvin as like salesmen in the uh, in the South. So that was like you know it was a normal movie that he made more strange by applying these newer and and less uh, uh, time tested methods to them, like having classical music and Ennio Morricone and Leo Kotke on the soundtrack. Like, I think he's chasing sure. at the idea that this has to be ordinary. And I think in that sense, it's embryonic, but I don't think that, you know, I don't know, I, you know, if I'm making it sound like I think he, he, he later perfects this, I think it's just because I like when he's more, uh, uh, un, unbridled by uh, the circumstances of production. I mean, here you've got to do so much work to get to the actual filming of it. You have to build the farm mm. set. You've got to get to Alberta. You've got to wait for the magic hour. You know, there's so much. You got to load a helicopter with peanut shells. You got to load a helicopter with peanut shells. Exactly. The whole thing of the biblical plague, you know, that's like, that's very him, but it's also like, you know, it relies on on you guys creating nature as opposed to letting nature create for you, which he does later. Right. When um, you can just let the camera roll and eventually Val Kilmer will try to cut an amp in half with a chainsaw. chainsaw. <laughs> yeah, that's letting nature take its course in a way that it isn't later. I think later he likes kind of shaking up elements, but for the most part, he, he just kind of enjoys life i mean that's you know the the new world uh, uh, i find to be a slightly more compelling film than this only because he clearly just let everybody live for months you know as long as they were filming so that everything seems more natural this is this is a little more beholden to a traditional narrative arc um which which to me sort of takes mm. a little bit of the sort of cosmic mystery and romance out of it but it's still I mean, it's still a remarkable movie and absolutely one of the best films of the 70s. Well, so I first saw The Thin Red Line. I like had my parents tape it off of like one of those free HBO weekends or whatever. And <laughs> I watched it and I loved it. And I was, you know, a young, young man. I don't know. I probably wasn't even a teenager yet. And um, and I, I was like, I fell in love with it. And I was like, holy shit, like, this is amazing. But then, of course, like I was I was young, like where was I going to see another Terrence Malick movie? So I'm pretty sure that I it took me until college to see Days of Heaven because I ordered it on Netflix um, back when they well, I mean, they still do it. But back when it was only, you know, mailing you DVDs, like I went to college, me and this girl who I was friends with decided to go in together on a three disc Netflix subscription and the, the the idea was like she would get one disc and I would get two. And the first thing I did was I was like, I'm finally going to get to see Days of Heaven. And, <laughs> and so I watched it. and I was like, oh, my God, this is also amazing. I, what, what's interesting that I'm just kind of realizing now for the first time is that like his first couple movies have very classic plots. And for some reason, even though that is true, people still position him as like an experimental or an out of the box filmmaker. But like. Badlands is a retelling of the whole Starkweather thing. So it's like a young girl runs off with a bad boy who kills people. It's it's sure. it's a very like like uh, Scott was saying, like a very 70s plot for a movie. Yeah. This one is the same, like a guy kills a guy and then they go on Lovers the run on and the then run. they try to grift. And then the third red line yeah. is a war epic. And then even the new world has like the 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 hinge the, the of the historical romance. And so it's really not until the tree of life or um you know if you want to go like to the wonder that he really starts to get experimental he's like this doesn't quite have a plot like there's no it was the it was the dinosaurs in tree of life that was what set the rest of the world off it was that they saw that the movie had dinosaurs and they were like well 
this is too much, sir. And uh, so, like, that was that was the thing with Tree of Life is that there were dinosaurs and they didn't belong in normal movies. So that should tell Which you. Which is crazy because every of, movie deserves a dinosaur. I, I also, agree. four people walked out of my theater when the dinosaurs came on when I saw mm-hmm. te- uh, Tree of Life. There you go. And that's like Terrence Malick. Terrence Malick is a fascinating figure in America because he's essentially got uh, like a a more broadly, you know, continental sensibility. You know, he's got a more international cinema sensibility. But in America, he is, you know, seen as the most out there guy there is, which absolutely speaks to the fucking corseted film language that we have here in America, where people are like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, a dinosaur in a movie about a family? (laughs) You know, like that's, people fucking lose their minds when he, you know, pushes just ever so slightly at the boundaries right. of what a traditional people saw that and they're like, do. Oh, what is with like the 15 minute interlude about like the creation of the universe? And I'm like, did you not read the Job <laughs> quote that was at the beginning of this movie? Do you not understand right. that he's contextualizing the grief of a single man in the entirety of God's creation? And like, I, I, I flip out about stuff like that. Cause I'm like, again, I am a Catholic and I think that there's something about Terrence Malick that speaks to me on a level of my faith that like, if, if this were a just world movies like this and movies like silence would be our conception of faith-based cinema and not like fireproof or God's not dead because just, you know, like God's not dead. On, <laughs> there's actually three on God's step not on dead. It. So just step. I've seen all fucking three of them. They are not, uh, I mean, they're, you know, they're better than Malik, but they're not great. <laughs> Um, <laughs> how much sin is there just a touch or uh there's a, there's a touch of sin there is a touch of sin and then that person will get hit by a car and die <clears throat> and then there's a concert at the end of it though there's a great concert where a band that sounds like 21 pilots uh <laughs> after a lawsuit um plays a great concert where everybody texts their friends they say everybody make sure you text your friends hashtag god's not dead and uh, that's how that's how, you know, God's out there is because everybody's texting each other about it. Um, but uh, just no, like Bigfoot and space aliens. <laughs> yeah, Bigfoot and space aliens. Um, <laughs> that's that's another movie that Malik should make the Bigfoot story. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, I agree that these are like actually interested in questions of, you know, religious faith and sort of like understanding of the universe and the way that we build our conception of history and everything through images um, as opposed to like you know, uh, fables. And I, I just, I just think that he's onto something that no, that I shouldn't say no, but very few American filmmakers are. Um, it's extremely rare that you see somebody with his kind of anything goes approach talking about something as, as typically rigid and concrete in the American discourse as religious faith. Um, or for that matter, I mean, like, uh, labor, you know, uh, Days of Heaven is a very interesting film about labor where, you know, they're they're, yeah. they're they're trying to grift this guy who controls their labor and um, they want his money. But ultimately, you know, he lives longer than they intend him to, which is itself sort of metaphorical, though it's like obviously caged in very literal trappings, which is that they just want this this con to end so they can go back to their lives. But by that point, everything is far too complicated. It really does speak to the kind of enduring labor crisis in America. Um, but again, it's all just laid, laid, laced in this very poetic, um, you know, this movie is, is, is almost like a song or a symphony more than anything else. It's, uh, there's just so can many we, beautiful parallel threads. Sorry, go ahead. Can we talk about, uh, the amount of people was an actual thing that happened back then? Wait, and, can you, oh, yeah. can you start over again, Bill? You broke up a little bit. Sure. Um, so 
the train and and things like that like what is going on there and and how is that is that something that was very common back then i mean obviously this was this is set in like 1916 or something like that it's like right before Um, early 20th century yeah 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 so like i have no context on like what this time period even is to be honest with you well maybe Um, i should have let the uh the trailer play on a little more because that guy was really getting into some detail (laughs) you know it's it's, it is that idea of if people people were like this you know as urbanization and industrialization kicked up people were getting ground under the gears of mass capital in cities and they would uh they would they was basically like a second westward expansion it was like we got to go we got to find a new thing to do um we're not making any money it was you know the the roaring 20s had not yet happened so there was still a bad financial situation for everyone. And so they were like, we're going to move west where we're like, it's like land of golden opportunity. Yeah. But well, the reason I'm asking that is because like I see this as I understand that it takes coal to fuel the fire that burns the engine for those steam engine or steam trains. Right. Like right. those were steam trains. So yes. if I load that motherfucker up with 150, 200 people that weigh roughly, I don't know, 150 pounds each, right? That's not a insignificant amount of cargo that I just added that are a bunch of fucking freeloaders. Like, like none of those people are paying a ticket. I know this. So you think that the train companies were probably like upset about it's, it's it's like, it's like when it's like when an airplane is like, you have a two luggage. Yeah. Like, like, I'm just like, I'm just like, I don't understand. Like, like, was this an actual thing that happened? Like, I, I mean, obviously, was, some of these there, some of these people have to migrate, right? This is this is the idea of the migrant workers or things like that. Like, there has to be some kind of transport or some kind of, you know, they're, they're not going to get very far on foot, right? It was, like, it was basically so. So, it, you know, there there were. I mean, there are a number of of, of different situations vis a vis train travel. I mean, if you watch something like Robert Aldridge's Emperor of the North Pole. Um, you get a sense of the policing that took place on on trains. But there were deals worked out for especially for things that were going to very specific purposes, yeah. um, which was to fuel places like that farm with, you know, whatever they might need for the season ahead, because so much of that part of the country was unreachable by anything but train travel. Gotcha. I mean, planes, that makes you know, as you yeah, as you see with the planes later, it was not a thing that everybody had, and there certainly wasn't mass plane transit for uh, a couple of years afterwards. I mean, it was why they were still traveling by Zeppelin as late as like World War One. Um, but that's yeah. So they, they would have they would have basically been able to bribe their way onto the train for very little, um, and that would have gone directly into the pockets of the engineers and things like that. And they would have done that knowing that they were providing cheap labor to the people along the lines. Um, but in general, you're you're correct that they 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 were like they were pretty brutal train police uh, during this period. Um, so you know that right? basically, exactly, yeah, exactly. Um, who, if you weren't paying something, if you weren't bribing them or the conductors or something like that, then they would beat the shit out of you and leave you for dead in the rail yard. I mean, that's um, why they're all jumping off before they even reach the station. They're like, all right, well, we gotta yeah. get off like a half exactly. mile before the station, well, and then right. luckily and again, the people. Sorry, yeah, go ahead. Well, the people looking for labor know, like, well, we don't hang out at the station. We hang out right before the station <laughs> yes. with yeah, exactly. a megaphone. That's exactly right, yeah. yeah. They're looking, for, yeah, exactly. The guy the guy with the megaphone calling out for people who, you know, to go work on the farms and all that. And that was, you know, again, because 
so much of the country was unformed, but it was formed enough to exploit poor people because there was plenty of fucking poor people back then. You know, they have systems in place to make sure that, you know, the, the, the stream of Eastern European immigrants or whatever coming from New York and Chicago would have a place to go that they could work for cheaply and then they could just discard them at the end of the season. Um, you know, which is why it's such a big deal for, for Richard Gere and Brooke Adams to take advantage of Sam Shepard, because otherwise, I mean, you see them sleeping in that hay bale with the snow on them. I mean, that was not an uncommon thing back then. Um that's you know. There's another movie that sort of acts as as with so many m- movies in 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 this decade and the, and the last decade as kind of Malik homages. But you see it a little bit in um, Walter Sias's um, adaptation of On the Road, the Jack Kerouac story. The pockets mm-hmm. of exploited labor classes all throughout the United States, even as late as that. I mean, that movie is set in the fifties, and and nothing had improved. You know, if anything, it had just gotten worse because there were now more people to exploit. Um, and, you know, that's that's something that, that Terrence Malick, I think, is very plugged into. You can see it in the very, very disillusioned father figure in Tree of Life, where he thinks of himself as this kind of captain of industry. But he's a guy who gets taken advantage of just like everybody else, just because he can afford a nicer home than some people, you know. And that's him driving to the other parts of town to buy the good barbecue and stuff like that, still exploiting people, not paying them fair wages or anything. You know, he thinks that by, like tipping his waitress a little more and making conversation with her that he's like this big captain in the in the town who's respected and that's that's a that's a huge thing to that generation of people who kind of like came of age post-war was and it's even possible know, like, that he that he was but like yeah. he knows in his heart that he should have more like he talks about how many patents he has yeah exactly and everything exactly. that he does and he's like the like, plant closes and yeah my my grandfather was exactly the same way and i remember leaving the theater uh, with my dad when we saw tree of life together at the uh, at the sunshine in uh, in uh, on the lower east side of new york him just saying how much that that character the brad pitt character reminded him of his dad when he was younger like, and that was just like such a thing in america it was like being aware that the poor were being exploited and so the most important thing necessarily wasn't even making more money than everybody else it was the it was the way you carried yourself it was this belief that if you talked about yourself as a rich guy and acted like a rich guy, then the world would give you what you wanted. And that's, you know, you you see that a little bit with the Richard Gere character in this, whereas a guy who clearly styles himself as this like would-be entrepreneur, but he's too hot-headed, he's too dumb, and he's too short-sighted to actually like settle down any place long enough to make money. I mean, you know, we we don't we we crucially don't see the argument take place whereby he kills the mill foreman. It's just mm-hmm. that this is who he is. He cannot hold down a job because he thinks yeah. too highly of himself in the context of labor. What, one thing I was struck by was just how fucking beautiful Richard Gere is in this movie. So and, pretty. Oh and my God. I was I was struck by the fact that like, no, like he, he would he would clearly be like like snatched up by Hollywood. Right. And then I was like, oh, yeah, this is like 1916. There is no Hollywood. So, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like it kind of makes sense. You had to be rich. I mean, Joe Kennedy, Joe Kennedy, the scion of the fucking Kennedy family was a guy who got into pictures because he had money. And that was it. It was literally he had money. And so he like, like got into bed with RKO. That was the yeah, whole thing. He was thing. a bootlegger. Was, yeah, exactly. He sucked. He was the worst. And I'm glad he's dead. Um, and now we're dealing with this fucking like third generation grandchildren who are still fucking carners. Just weirdos. a copy of a copy at this point. Like, you know, JFK uh, and RFK fun. were pretty good, but now you've just like, and the, the, all the good ones seemingly die. Yeah. So you're just and now stuck we got with Joe the Kennedy, leaders. the third who hopefully has lost by the time we've finished this he episode. <laughs> Thank just Christ. Lost. <laughs> he lost that. Marky. Thank Christ. Oh man. What a, what a happy ending to this episode. <laughs> it's not even over yet. It's barely been an hour. I, I'm sorry. 
<laughs> That's all right. I'll cut it. I'll move it to the end. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of curious a little bit. I, I, at least from what I understand, it's been a bit since you've revisited these older Maliks, right? Um, yeah, I, I would say that it's been a little while since I've seen Days of Heaven or Badlands. I actually intended on watching Badlands to go along with this episode, and then I just didn't. Um, I'm a very busy, <laughs> important man, and I just couldn't find the time for it. Joe I'm just kidding. Fuck out of here. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think the uh, I, I I'm I, I know we've talked a lot about this, but we don't get to directly talk about uh, spirituality that much in relation to older Malik. I mean, do you think that that conception of spirituality that you uh, feel a deep connection with? Do you see that in this older film as well, or is it is it mostly those latter day films? It's a little bit in this film. I think that Malik like me is a man who is like, it, it's inextricable. Like his, his faith lives in every moment of his life. And so it's sure. always going to be there in some way. Um, and so when he's talking about one thing, you have to understand that on like belying that as a foundation is, is this conception of faith. I mean, like this movie has a lot of moments where Linda Mance's character is talking about like conceptions of hell with like the snakes crawling down your throat and eating yes. out your systems and yes. yeah, there's a lot of that. Um, I I find it to be a little more. Well, there's also the, um, the 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 moment where they see the religious service happen just before the the, the harvest begins. Yeah, yeah. With the 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 guy with the censer in the middle of the wheat field yeah. <laughs> yes. is pretty awesome. Um, there is so much in this movie. I I need to bring this up uh, before launching into everything else. I have to say, uh, I just love that like everything in this movie just feels like very like planted without any kind of sense of like layout or greater plan. Like it seems like the farmer was just like that hill is going to be good for my house. I will put a gazebo over there. I'm going to put a very nice end table in that quadrant. Yeah. yeah. It's he's got so much space that like, there's no need to make any kind of grid system. He can really just do willy nilly, whatever he wants. And, He's really um, just encouraging that uh, that affair is what you're really saying. <laughs> oh yes, totally. Absolutely. He he really should have centralized all of the romantic places. Exactly. Um. So yeah. So I mean, like obviously, uh, the Thin Red Line has a lot of religious and philosophical stuff in it. I think that and the also like a pretty a pretty literal Christ figure as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, he, he dies, and then they make a cross with his gun. Yeah. Um, it's um and and i i think that in terms of like he's it's it's hard because everything that he does has a different kind of take on it so to the wonder is a lot about romance and you know love that persists beyond just a moments of infatuation and uh the new world is kind of like paradise found and paradise lost immediately and sure. i i like the fact that the that he codified something in my mind when I watched the thinner line, which is people will often say like, why does God allow war? But in the thin red line, they make kind of a point of saying like war is like nature, like conflict is nature. Like it's the process by which things happen and things go on. So like if you have a conception that the, the rules of the natural word are the mechanisms of the almighty, then you know there is no harmony like every everything 
is doing one thing to to harm another for its own its own interest. And the the way that grace enters into that is in realizing when you're doing it and attempting to modify your behavior in order to stop that. And also, you know, to 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 kind of double down on that. I mean, you look at I mean, Days of Heaven literally called Days of Heaven. And what's yeah, in sure. this movie in context are the Days of Heaven. They were they are a period of lying to each other where Brooke Adams has to lie to Sam Shepard to get into his bed. She has to lie to Richard Gere about how much she loves him. Richard Gere has to lie about her, her you know, sort of uh, Adam and Eve style relationship to Brooke Adams to Sam Shepard. And Sam Shepard has to sort of, you know, cover up his health for them because if they were to put their cards on the table about him dying, then the relationship wouldn't be what it is. And so that for Malik, I think is sort of intrinsic to this conception of the world itself as something like Bill was saying, it, you know, uh, it's, I'm sorry, Brian was saying it's, it's, you know, it, a, a world in conflict is the truest conception of a religious, you know, thing based on, you know, the biblical parables and all the stories and all that. It's, it's, there is some measure of sin every, you know, no matter how paradisic anything threatens to become, there's always some form of conflict going on. And the lying Mm -hmm. here, you know, has to represent both the impetus for their grace period, but also its downfall, that they can live beautifully in the lie, but the lie must also destroy them. Yeah, okay. I I mean, I guess I hadn't thought of every part of that being alive but when you break it down that way i i guess it i guess it does i and and i think you know i i, I suppose linda mance and in, in that sense i i think what i find really interesting about her her voiceover and i i'm worried in talking about how um how to the point it is that we're we're not actually getting across like it's it's odd tone like it's it's not simply you know she is jaded it's not simply that you know she's a a babe in the woods or anything like her her conception of the world is is fascinating and and i like the way that she intermittently kind of leaves it like I, i love that little bit where we find out that one of the workers that's there for the season you know she we see her talking to her once about um i don't know something in her family i'm sorry i can't remember but either way she leaves and she's like you were a really good friend to me and and she leaves and and it's you know it's obviously supposed to then trigger that thing where they're all living alone but nonetheless i think it also like i i don't get the sense that uh linda mance's character you know she very much has her own life that linda has a life that exists far outside what we're actually seeing on the screen well that's kind of what i what i love about this movie is that like it is it is told through the lens of of linda as a character and it's it's very clear that like She's telling this story that only affected her in so much as it put her in this place at this time. Sure. So, like, she's not, like, wrapped up in the drama of it all. You know, she's, like, a quarter mile away across the field <laughs> seeing these these people acting out these roles. But meanwhile, she's, like, made friends with this blonde woman. She's, yeah. you know, picking at the ground, saying that she should be a mud doctor. And <laughs> <That's> <laughs> Well, that's yes, I love also 
checking out the earth underneath. Is, yes. Is it her exact yeah. wording, which I just love. Checking out the earth underneath. It's well, that's I, again, that's this, that, that the character of the narration sets us apart from all other Terrence Malick movies in a, like in a way that I just find so fucking beautiful. And that even if I find bits of this to be, you know, sort of uh, uh, stylistically uh, blunted in as much as I know that Terrence Malick was capable of more than this movie lets him do. The, the, the Linda Mann's narration is such a fucking gift. It is so perfect. That there is just like everything about the way that she just thinks of the world that I'm I am <laughs> certain that Darren's Malik didn't have to say to her, hey, remember that this is set in the past, that I am certain <laughs> that she just started speaking and yeah. this madness came out. This this bizarro biblical commentary on the world and her place in it. And like because there's a whole thing where she talks about she had a friend who, like and, and like his name was something else, like it like. It is just so fucking wild and like absolutely just some like Allen Ginsbergian nonsense that is so perfect and so gorgeous. And again, in that thick accent and everything. And like, I just, I am, I am so in awe of the whole process by which, I mean, honestly, it's one of those movie miracles where like, you know, every, like as somebody who's made at this point, almost 30 films, I can tell you that like filmmaking is 100% just letting accidents happen mm -hmm. um, and presiding over them. And much like the time that Werner Herzog asked a priest about a squirrel and got the most heartbreaking monologue in the entirety of his cinema in Into the Abyss, um, the idea that Terrence Malick grabbed Linda Manns of all people from that movie and said, would you want to talk into a microphone for like three days? And, <laughs> and out, out comes this. It's just, it is, it is so perfect. It is the perfect accident. And, and she's like, the perfect I, I, one to tell this story because again, she has no dog in the fight really. Yeah. Um, she has no, she has such a child's conception of the very adult drama going on, which is perfect because it keeps the adult drama feeling very childish and in its way, very not, primal. But she's not immature. No, so no, she can't be. She's like a she's stuff. like a a steel rat who's now having to work <laughs> on a farm. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's not. It's not. It's not immature at all. It's just very unformed in this yeah, beautiful plain way. spoken in the most intense way. Because like uh, Richard Gere's got to be like, uh, no, this is my uh, this is my sister. You know, it's the blah blah blah, and everyone's like, yeah, sure, your sister. And yeah. he, so he's got to wrestle with that. And meanwhile, Lynn Mance is just traipsing around talking to a woman who's like telling her that this man didn't like return her affection. And now there's someone else who's going to war. Um, I, well, I mean, just I mean, you think about the way, too, that the, the relationships are formed in this movie, that there's something to the very like weird, unformed kind of uh, way that Linda Mans describes the world that fits the, the immaturity of the protagonist. I mean, like, you know, the, the, the yeah. thing that sticks out a little bit to me is Sam Shepard at one point says to uh, uh, um, uh, Brooke Adams, he says, I think I love you. And she says, what a nice thing to say. And it's like, <laughs> that's, you know, it's like on his face, it's like, whoa, what an adult response. But at the same time, it's like, you guys are just children. Meanwhile, Linda Mann says these things that have this like, like wiseness beyond the, the few years that she lived at this point where she says things like, sometimes I feel very old, like my whole life was over. 
Like, I'm not around no more. And it's like, see, that kind of shit is, like, so sage and strange. And as this, like, Buddhist eternal, you know. There's another one. The sun looks ghostly when there's a mist on a river and everybody's quiet. I never knowed it before. Now, you could see people on the shore, but they was far off. And you couldn't see what they were doing. They were probably calling for help or something. Or they were trying to bury somebody or something. Like, what? Right. Her conception of what people might be doing is, I don't know, they're probably in danger or mourning. Yeah, exactly. They're either (laughs) screaming for help or burying a dead relative. Meanwhile, like, you know, like unbelievable where she has this understanding of the vast cruelty of life on Earth. But she still can't really click into it where it's like, oh, that happens to other people. And I'm not there yet. It's just such a beautifully warped conception of the world. And I just think it's some of the most pure shit in American movies. There's the point when credence to that, too, uh, Scout. I mean, you could point to when Richard Gere is first trying to bring up the grift and he's trying to convince. uh, Yeah, Bill is trying to convince Abby that that Shepard is sick. And and the, the I loved the language that he says. He says, um, speaking about Shepard's character, he says he has one foot on a banana peel and one on a roller skate. That's right. That's right. Which there's you know there's no mythic quality to that. It's, no, it's, it's just so it's a screwball view at, like, of death. Yeah, right. he's yeah, seen like he's seen one aesthetic. silent comedy and he's like, all right, I figured yeah, it yeah. out. <laughs> He like he, yeah he saw one Harry Langdon movie and now he knows how the world works. But that's just like exactly that. It it's like the the older people have this conception from fiction, right? Where they're like romantic people, but they're not learned people. They're not smart people. They didn't go to school. They're just like I mean, this is a guy who lives in a field by himself, and his only company is his crusty old ranch foreman. Right. Like and he's he no. He's got no sense of the world. Right. He says, I always thought that being alone was something that a man had to put up with. It was just, it it was like, I just got used to it, which is crazy. I do love one of my, so my daughter, the other day, I come home from the distillery uh, because she sees me when I'm at home working uh, at my actual job because I'm at home. The only time I leave is when I go to the distillery and I'm gone for all day and I come home and she immediately runs over and she'd apparently picked a handful of flowers for me. She handed them and said, these are for you for love. <laughs> and I was just like, yeah, that's it. Like, that's that's the meaning of this. Like, that's perfect. Like, you know, it's not like I got these to let you know how much I think about you. Like, no, these these are for you for love. This is the point of these flowers. <laughs> and then that's, that reminds me of, of Don Draper's famous line. That's what the money's for. Yeah. That's what the money's for. No, no, it's and honestly, Mad Men, you can draw a straight fucking line from Days of Heaven to Mad Men. Like there is absolutely a fucking straight line with a capitalist, like just the the utter despair at the heart of capitalism. Like so here's, absolutely the same. Here's another thing. So like my daughter has given me flowers a few times, and the other day I was walking around the house and I realized how many cups full of mostly evaporated water with dead flowers I had. And because I just refused to throw them away because they're for love. Hey, so, you, can hang and, them. you can hang them. You yeah, can, so I'm, you can dry them out. I was thinking about that. I was like, I got to figure out something to do with all these flowers. And then in this movie, Linda, when talking about the farmer, says, was no harm in him. You give him a flower, he'd keep it forever. And I'm just like, <laughs> yeah, because that's what you do when someone gives you a gift for love. <laughs> it's true. It's very true. Well, that's and that's also, I think, kind of like weirdly baked into the religious worldview is like understanding the sort of like 
fable slash parable kind of quality to so much of life where as you get older, you kind of only have these like handful of conceptions of the way that like, you know, the narratives of, of our lives are supposed to go. And the beautiful thing about the Linda man's narration is that it is so wild and unruly and just woolly and comes from who knows where, you know, like I, there's just, there's something to the infinite possibilities of the things that she sees, even though as we've established, it's only a couple of things, but it's not, she doesn't see things in a straight line. Um, here's you know, a, like it, go ahead. sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, here's a question. So, I mean, we've, we've heaped a lot of praise on, on Mance at this point and just for, for Malik, like using her in this way, right? Does this film necessarily work if it doesn't have that narration? It's an interesting, I, I think that it would I, in a way, I mean, like the, the story be more itself, conventional. Yeah, the story itself is still compelling and the images are still beautiful. Mm-hmm. I, and I certainly think that the prettiest faces in cinema, you know. So that's a movie right there. I mean, yeah, when you got when you when you have that golden hour light reflecting off the faces of Richard Gere and Sam Shepard and Linda Mance and Brooke Adams and Stuart Margolin and Doug yes. Kershaw <laughs> Yes. Richard Libertini. The, the idea that this movie has Stuart Margolin and Richard Libertini is insane to me. <laughs> the idea that Richard Libertini was three years away at this point from being in Popeye for Robert Altman, and Stuart Margolin, <laughs> who is Angel from Rockford Files, as the silent and terrifying Mill Foreman that Richard Gere kills, is insane that to me is the equivalent of him casting tom lennon in night of cuts like what is Stuart margolin doing in this movie what the fuck is richard libertini doing in this movie Stuart margolin's getting hit in the face with a shovel and dying and dying right away gosh imagine how how brittle our bones used to be (laughs) we couldn't get any vitamin d the sun was choked by uh the the mists of industry yeah, you had to pay a quarter for the sun back then. Yeah. <laughs> Candy cost a nickel. <laughs> Sunshine cost a full quarter. Um, right. So, <laughs> That's right. What no, was but I, I, I can't think, even remember I think, what I, I, I mean, it would have lost something without Linda Mann's, but I think that the film would be more traditionally thought of. I think without Linda Mann's... Like as with any of these elements, I think that if you lose any of them, you get a more traditional movie. But I think the the bizarro like KFC famous bowl of elements that we have here is what <laughs> makes this so endearing and so beautiful and so otherworldly and strange. See, I would not call this movie soggy. So I'm, I'm <laughs> I have never I confess right now before God and everyone, I have never had a KFC famous bowl, so I do not know the texture. <laughs> they're, so they're I are the sadness bowl as Pat Nas. No. Sadness bowl <laughs> yeah. as Pat Nossa. Yeah, yeah. They are good. They are failure pile and a sadness bowl. Yeah, that was about to say there's something about failure in there too. By this mortal coil while I eat it all the better um but it's i mean it is i mean okay so let's let's drop the kfc line then let's call it like a turducken of of gorgeousness and unruly partly religious imagery and storytelling uh beats and and just it's yeah it is the it is the wooliness of every single element in probably fitting together that i think makes the film as special as it is but i think if you lost one of them you would have a movie that was well thought of if not 
a classic. Yeah. Everybody knows that biblical plagues add a little bit of smokiness to the turducken. <laughs> so they do. Well, especially when you burn a field yeah. and then stab a man in the chest with a screwdriver. Right. Ugh, that must have hurt among the motherfucker. Yeah, I can't believe That's Sam Shepard let them stab him in the chest with a screwdriver for this movie. Because yeah, so as we all know, back in the old days, there was no special effects. There no special effects. You had to carry the screwdriver around in your chest until your your body healed itself and forced it out the old-fashioned way. Right. Luckily, um, SAG after, you know, they had really good insurance. Um, What was I going to say? Uh, oh, on that note, fucking... Uh, the Adventures of Robin Hood with Errol Flynn, when they just legitimately shot people with arrows, but had them have like wood <laughs> under their costume. Yeah. Just yeah. want to throw that out there. That's a thing I love reminding people of. <laughs> well, how would you have done that it? Doesn't surprise me. <laughs> I literally don't know. I have no clue. I, I, some kind of camera trick. I don't, that, I have that no movie idea. Sounds, that movie sounds more and more like Jackass 3D. Basically. Yes, a little bit. Have, yeah. It's yeah. It's if you took Adventures in Robin Hood and 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 uh, set it in the present day and shot it on digital cameras, it would be exactly the same movie. Yep. The costumes are as intricate, the stunts are as well thought out, and improbably nobody died. Yeah, because they so had was Errol like Flynn, but, Johnny Knoxville. Is that what we're saying? Errol Flynn. Errol Flynn. Welcome to Jackass. I'm Errol Flynn. Welcome to the Adventures of Robin Hood. <laughs> 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 I'm Olivia de Havilland. Welcome to Jackass. I'm Olivia de Havilland, and this is the Bungie. <laughs> Okay, we need to come up with a name. Someone come up with a name. <laughs> I'm Basil Rathbone. This is the butt chunk. <laughs> Why? I guess Basil Rathbone, if someone had to do it, would probably do the butt chunk. It would be Basil. This He's is the William Tell. Tell. He's We're going to see each other with bow and arrows. <laughs> Basil Rathbone, very much the Steve-O of classic Hollywood. We all know this. I'm Claude Rains, and this is Bambi Wrestling. <laughs> Claudereides tried to subdue a live deer. <laughs> uh, I'm Eugene Pallet, and this is the bungee wedgie. <laughs> so we're done, right? <laughs> and cut. <laughs> I feel like Scout sounds like he's crying. <laughs> Print it. We just came up with Errol Flynn's The Adventures of Robin and Jackass. <laughs> so our next episode 100% has to be on The Adventures of Robin Hood now, right? God, if you yeah, do Jackass, we're Jackass, Jackass, too. Jackass too. <laughs> right, we, we've either got to talk about Jackass or The Adventures of Robin Hood, or both. Or a double feature. I, I, I think we've got a double feature uh, thematic double connection here. Classics episode. <laughs> <laughs> Are you going to be okay? I'm going to be fine. <laughs> You like my Claude Rains impression just gutted you. I'm picturing like Claude Rains with the meat 
the meat jock strap over the alligator pool. <laughs> uh, Uno O'Connor for, for BMX jousting. Oh my god. I'm now I'm now reading the trivia him. for the adventures of Robin Hood and it's just as beautiful as you'd want it to be. I hope so. Uh, During one fight sequence, Errol Flynn was jabbed by an actor who was using an unprotected sword. He asked him why he didn't have the guard on the point. The other player an apologized unprotected sword, huh? And, and explained that the director, <laughs> Michael Curtis, had instructed him to remove the safety feature in order to make the action more exciting. Flynn reportedly <laughs> climbed up a gantry where Curtis was standing next to the cameraman, took him by the throat, and asked him if he found that exciting enough. <laughs> That's old Hollywood, that sounds, baby. That sounds very much like the relationship between, like, Brenda DeCamillo and Jeff Tremaine on the set of Jack. <laughs> Sounds the same. Who would throw up all the time? <laughs> Alan Hale. It's got to be Alan Hale. Anyway, oh, Days God. of Heaven, the second theatrical feature by Terrence Malick. <laughs> hey, Malick is almost definitely a fan of Jackass. Just like There's PTA no. is a fan of Airplane. Like, come on. You know, no you know Malick way. secretly has to be like... Yeah, I, I'm waiting for the the James Gandolfini is is obsessed with Dookie version of uh, Terrence Malick. Doesn't well, no, Terrence I thought Malick, Terrence Malick loves Zoolander. Malick, he famously oh, loves Zoolander. He? Yeah, but okay. I, I I think I think he has to be a fan of Jackass. There's just no fucking way. Like too many things overlap um, <laughs> between Terrence Malick cinema and Jackass. Like I feel like he and Jeff Tremaine could like host a brilliant masterclass. Um, and just imagine Terrence Malick's jackass where he's getting the stunts from like 37 angles come on here please gaze on this porta potty that's just been (laughs) it's right I think golden hour though don't worry about it (laughs) it's all Golden Hour Jackass. It's, this shit rules. This is so fucking funny. I can't believe this. <laughs> if we, I feel like if we hadn't already spent over 400 episodes alienating everyone who is not on our specific wavelength, this, this, this run of Terrence Malick and Jackass and, <laughs> and the Adventures oh, of Robin Hood man. would be the thing where people would be like, I don't think this is for me. <laughs> Like if <laughs> this is how, this I'm is Stuart why we Marlin. are the... welcome to Jackass. <laughs> <laughs> Who's gonna be the bravest among us? Who's gonna do a Linda Mance Jackass intro? <laughs> oh my god! You know the like a, a lot of her narration kind of sounds like it could double as Jackass like scene descriptions. Like here's like the here's snake the quote. Pit? From when the the flying circus comes to town, it's just as things doctor? were about to blow. The flying circus came in after six months in its sweet patch. I needed a breath of fresh air. They were screaming and yelling and bopping each other. Steve-O <laughs> climbed into the porta potty and they flung it into the air. It was like a comet made out of waste. Peter, <laughs> the big one, pushed the little one and said, "Come on, I started. You start." 
Uh, that's my best. Johnny Knoxville got sent to the snake house. He just sits there and laughs and watches while you're sitting there all tied up with snakes eating your eyes out. They found out that Bam hated snakes, so they put snakes in his trailer. He got so mad, he came out there, he was crying that he had to leave early. Oh man. Oh man. Anyway, um so this movie is great. It's a great yeah, movie. It's a good movie. It's a really good movie. I, I will also say Linda Linda Mance, I caught out of the blue this week, uh, because I thought we were gonna be talking more about Linda Mance and less about Jackass. So uh that's another film that she stars in and she's amazing in that movie because she seems like she belongs in every scene, whether it's the most rundown alley in the world or uh, a John hotel or just some truly horrid places that she ends up and somehow gets out of them before they become extremely horrible situations. So uh, that's hard to see right now, <laughs> but there's a restoration coming for it uh, soon. So she keep is, on the lookout yeah. for that. And she's yeah. only in about 12, 12 things like TV and movie total, but she's good in all of them. And most of them are classics out of the blue is the most Linda man's heavy of all of them. Second, possibly only to days of heaven, but um, Linda man's is also Wanderers. in the Wanderers, which is an yeah. amazing film. Um, that's a great Phil Kaufman movie based on a Richard Price novel. Um, also in the game, uh, improbably enough, David, yeah, she, the game. She's, the, uh, she is credited as Christine's roommate, Amy. <laughs> um and also of course in Harmony Corinne's Gummo um which also <laughs> of course energy um but uh no any any yeah any movie with Linda Mans in it is worth watching if only because Linda Mans is in it um and yeah I'm really looking forward to the Out of the Blue restoration um I think that's an incredible very strange primal movie about like suburban America yeah. and why punk was so necessary in America um and again, and it has a Dennis way. Hopper performance, which is, oh, as you can imagine, man. a very Dennis Hopper performance. A Dennis Hopper performance <laughs> directed by Dennis Hopper. Yeah, yeah I Hopper. can only imagine. Oh my. As a fucking drug terrifying. bus driver. It's so yes. much, that performance. It's 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 incredible, honestly. It's it's unlike anything else he he did. Like, even, even you know, like, I, I may, maybe, like, the American Friend kind of hints at the intensity of the Out of the Blue performance, but it really is on its own wavelength. So, oh man! So, R.I.P. Linda Mance. Yes. R.I.P. Linda Mance. R.I.P. Dennis Hopper. R.I.P. Sam Shepard. And uh, R.I.P. <laughs> Chadwick Boseman. <laughs> Chadwick Boseman. Ryan Dunn. Haskell Wexler. Nestor Almendros. Let's just name everyone who's died. <laughs> <laughs> How much time you got? <laughs> I once read a probably made up fact that there are more people presently alive right now than have ever died. That can't be true. I don't know. The fucking crusades and shit. (laughs) (laughs) 
That's a great question. What? Then welcome to our new podcast. What about the Crusades <laughs> what about and shit? The crusades and shit. Of Where every week we come up with a fact and then ask the question, <laughs> "What about the Crusades and shit?" Are you Some... guys going to still do this podcast after this episode? It seems <laughs> not worth it. <laughs> we've peaked. We always yeah. think we've peaked, but then something else comes along. But really, like, you know, people saying yes to coming on the podcast. And I'm very confused and very thankful. I legitimately think it's for moments like this where it's just like, do you just want to have fun? Do you not want me to have to say, can we please stay on topic, gentlemen? Like, this is important. If we're on a riff and I think it works, we're going to stick with it. And I am not cutting out a goddamn second of it. As Alex Heaney said. (laughs) As Alex Heaney said, we are kind to our guests. And that means indulging every nonsensical, non sequitur and tangent. But seriously, yeah, like, you know, think- seriously, people like you have like a, a socioeconomist come on and be like, you know, there's never been a time of more socioeconomic and religious strife in the entirety of human race. And we're like, but what about the Crusades and shit? Shit. And hey, every- asshole. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what about the crusades and shit the gap between the wealthy and the poor has never been higher okay but what about the crusades and shit yeah i feel like i feel like that's like one step away from being fox news a little bit i mean it's a little bit one it's it's kind of like it's noam chomsky's jacket (laughs) one broad didactic question repeated endlessly Oh, I like that. I like that as a format. Just asking the same question over and over again, expecting a different answer. <laughs> oh man! So, does anyone have any final thoughts on this movie before we wrap up for today? Brilliant film. Very good. It's movie. so good. Yeah. Watch I'm... everything by Terrence Malick. Yes. Watch it all. Um, still need to see Voyage of Time. It's good. It's very good. I want to see it. I don't know where to see it. I don't know if it's on VOD or it's what. Steal it, bro. Just, gotta fucking steal it. This is uh, like the rehash of our Tukibuki episode where you were just like, yeah, if you can't find it, you just gotta steal that shit. Honestly, I stand by that. Apologies. I know we're in a you know recession, but you gotta you gotta steal what you can't find. If they're bro. not gonna let me pay for Voyage of Time, then I've gotta I, steal that shit. You have got to steal it, bro. That is um, the spin-off podcast to what about the Crusades <laughs> and shit is you gotta steal that shit. You gotta steal it, bro. You gotta steal that shit, bro. It's an advice. Um, it's no, an advice hey. podcast where people call in. The other one is is the silence. You know, just recap. Step on that shit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just Bill <laughs> not understanding at all. Kristen Christian <laughs> ideology. <laughs> just like just no, just I, step I, on I it. it. Just step on it. I get <laughs> it. Step but I just, I, I just think, you know, <laughs> you, you want to survive so you can continue preaching the word of God. Then you step on that shit and you say, <laughs> uh, you know, forgive me for I have sinned. And then you move on with your life. Well, I mean, yeah, that, that is in, forgive me, bro. <laughs> in so many words, that is, that is the question at the heart of that movie. Yes. Distilled yeah. down Beautiful to a film. perfect little uh, hashtag step on that shit. Um, yes. so this. <laughs> So that's all for today. Uh, I'd like to thank our guest, Scott Voyer, for taking the time to go just a little mad with us. We held on, and we're so on topic for so long. 
I, it, took us, it took us like a full hour to even get into this movie, though. That's not true. <laughs> oh, it did. It did. <laughs> Bill, have you been here? Yes, I have. We, we talked about Malik as a whole for a very time, long time. Time runs differently when you're in prison like Bill is. So, like, I trust him. <laughs> He's an institutionalized man now. Yeah. This is Bill's latest grift is trying to convince us that we haven't talked about the thing that we talked about. It's a grift I called it was gaslighting. Trading criterions for cigarettes on the inside. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a mint condition <laughs> the rock. Hey, bro. I got an out of print Armageddon. Give me two packs of Newports and it's yours. Newports. Okay. Let's, yeah, let's, let's get the fuck out of here. What do you smoke in prison, loser? I don't know. <laughs> lucky strikes? No, that's oh, what you, you smoke in World War II. Never mind. <laughs> I've had a lucky Holy strike. Shit. They're terrible. <clears throat> anyway, <laughs> that's it for today. Uh, let me remind you that we can be found at patreon.com slash filmstageshow. Uh, you can support the goofy shit that we do by going there <laughs> and uh, giving as little as $1 an episode. Um, what else? Uh, movie is a, a sponsor of us for some reason. God bless him. <laughs> Don't forget that you can watch Mountains Made Apart <laughs> on there right now. <laughs> Scott, are you going to be okay? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I feel like it's almost irresponsible to let you go in the condition you're in. Um, also, I'm going to go kill my mill foreman with a shovel. <laughs> Who in your life will take the place of that mill foreman? Um, <laughs> Joint security area by Park Chan. We've also on there. Uh, lots of great stuff. So make sure to check it out. Go to MUBI.com slash film stage for your free 30 day trial. Michael Snydell, what are we talking about next week? <laughs> <laughs> Jackass, obviously. Clearly we are. <laughs> we are actually just not doing this podcast anymore. <laughs> it's over, baby. Michael Snyder, we had a good run. You appear to be muted. I'll definitely muted right now. Hello, Michael. Um, I'm still here. What did? What's the last thing you guys heard? Uh, nothing. I said, "What are we talking about next week?" And you were deathly silent. <laughs> this is this is the end. Uh, all right, we are talking this about. This is not actually a bit, but we are talking about I'm thinking of ending things. <laughs> <laughs> we will then be following it up with this is the end. Uh, I, I'm thinking of ending. Guys, let me do the fucking bit and then you can be done. Okay. Um, uh, We're doing Charlie Kaufman's I'm thinking of ending things, which will be on Netflix on Friday. And we are having uh, Mary Beth McAndrews on. So look forward to that. Awesome. All right. Well, let's tell the fine people at home where we can be found between now and then. We will start, as always, with our guest, Scott Foy. Where can people find your work online? For whatever reason you're still interested, I am at Twitter at honors underscore zombie. I am at patreon.com slash honors zombie. Uh, every week, a new video essay, two pieces of original criticism, and one piece from the archives. That is the Honor Zombie Patreon promise. Uh, I have a monthly column at rogergebert.com called The Unloved. The most recent was on Universal Soldier Day of Reckoning, which just posted uh, this morning. Um, next Hell yeah, month, is that a Hyams? Yeah, man. Fucking John <laughs> Hyams, man. And uh, actually, next month, spoiler alert, this is just for your listeners, uh, there will be a different Hyams represented, and I am very excited for that. 
Um, so yeah, you can find me on all of the things. My feature films, of which there are too fucking many, can be found on Vimeo On Demand. Um, if you find Scout Tafoya and uh, Google Vimeo On Demand, you can find them. I recommend randomly uh, The Sunless Remembered, my vampire movie. Uh, and uh, yeah, uh, get at me. I'm very easy to find. If you want to talk about my movies or if you want to write about them, I will give you them to you for free. That is also the Scout Tafoya promise. Um, yeah, thank you for putting up with me for this. <laughs> last hour and change <laughs> it has been it has been a divine pleasure bill graham what about so yourself you. <laughs> uh you can find me on twitter at cable bfg you can also find me on instagram at billstagram that's where i'm mainly did you cut off or are you done no i'm done <clears throat> that's okay, great. you just like died in the middle of your plug <laughs> <laughs> sorry all right, Michael Snydell. Uh, oh, who am I? Oh, I'm, yeah. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Snydell. I'm on Letterboxd. Um, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to get back to like watching movies this this month. That was hard last month for whatever reason. Um, I'm not writing anything this week. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Just pay attention to my feed and inter- intermission is, is coming. Uh, there are still a lot more people I'm talking to. They are still coming. I just, uh, life just got busy. <laughs> Things are still coming. I promise. All right. Well, thank you for that what very happened, lucid Mike? plug, Michael. <laughs> God, God damn. bless you. Uh, I... I'm going to disappear again. <laughs> You're on that mute button, buddy. Uh, I am Brian J. Rowan. You can find me on all the social media sites at Brian J. Rowan. You can find my writing at my personal site, brianjrowan.com, and of course, thefilmstage.com, where you can also find every episode of this here podcast. If you are in the Maryland, D.C., Virginia area and are looking for a sweet, smooth rye whiskey, Come to Schmidt Spirits on Friday, on uh, Saturday, September 5th, when we'll be releasing our Cobalt six-month-aged rye whiskey uh, finished in a Caribbean rum cask. Nice. Uh, I, I've done this podcast three times now, and you've not sent me one free fucking bottle of anything. I'm <laughs> you know how hard it is to send <laughs> a bottle of liquor through the mail? It's very hard. Yeah. You run a distillery, bro. <laughs> That's, that, is, that is a federal crime. <laughs> Get the fuck out of here. Who's going to know? I'll put it inside a teddy bear. (laughs) Anyway. I ordered fucking moonshine through the mail. What you tell UPS is that it's olive oil. There you go. (laughs) All right. That's a good idea. Um, Thank you. Still still illegal, but uh, I might have to try that. Anyway. (laughs) Thank you, uh, ladies and gentlemen, for joining us. And um, yeah, tune in next week. (laughs) 